Welcome to the Ross Road Connect podcast. Our podcast aims to connect you to what's going on at Ross Road Community Church, to connect you to the people at Ross Road, and ultimately, to connect you to God himself. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Ross Road Connect podcast, episode number 31. My name is Craig, and I'm here with Holly. How are you today, Holly? Mm, yeah, I am uh, doing pretty good, Craig. Awesome. I, uh, yeah. Can't complain. How's Craig? Uh, pretty, pretty well. Um, so we, I didn't prep you for this. I'm just going to ask you on the spot. Um, <laughs> I think I already know what this is going to be, but we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we just entered into the season of Lent. And so oh, the world this is wants not where to know. Yeah, no, I don't know where you thought it. Where did you think it was going? <laughs> well, I thought we were going to come back to the conversation we had earlier when we were talking about how people mess up on common phrases, oh. like play it by ear, play it by ear. Yeah, and no. I thought of another one, but. Okay, well, it, hold that till after I'm yeah, done. Yeah, hold that thought. Yeah, yeah. So the world wants to know, did you, are you doing anything for Lent that you'd like to mm-hmm. share with the world? Yeah, you know what? I'm actually behind the ball a little bit on this one and I haven't picked something yet. But last year I did fast food. And yeah. let me tell you, it was, uh, it was pretty tough, but I actually think that I could, I could do it again. Um, it's funny. I was talking to Corey about it and I find that the most often I go to like McDonald's or Wendy's or something is like when I'm coming home from a youth night, yeah. because it's always like, you know, you've had dinner like such a long time ago. So it was like, Oh, well now it's like 10 or 11 o'clock and I need yeah. food again. So I would always get McDonald's or Wendy's, but you know, youth is online now. So yeah. I don't really have fast food that much anymore. So maybe that, but I actually need to choose still. So I'm up for recommendations if anybody has anything. <laughs> <laughs> you should, you could give up uh, uh, cat memes or cat pictures, or <laughs> you could give up the office for, for Lent. Or... Uh, that would be tough. That would yeah. be hard. Because, uh, yeah, I always have the office or parks and rec on as, like, just my background noise in my home. Like, it's just always there. But, uh, yeah, that would be tough. Well, here, here's the other thing. You could not give up anything because uh, here's, here's my little Lent reflection for the year, okay? This is going to sound very non-spiritual and non-uplifting. Uh, <laughs> oh, Lent, hit me with it. Yeah, Lent is, um, I think it's gaining steam in the evangelical church. Like, people are observing Lent more and more. But right. Jenny and I were talking about this yesterday. I think people use Lent for self-improvement and not for yeah. spiritual reasons, right? That's so true. Like the true purpose behind giving something up for Lent is to embrace suffering, is to... Uh, Put, allocate life. that time like with God too, like in time that you would be doing something, like replace that. Yeah, to like to to foster our dependence upon God and remind ourselves of our need for Him. Yeah. So, um, I think you can accomplish that by giving something up, and you know, maybe maybe you did accomplish that by giving up fast food. Um, but you know, for instance, uh, for, for myself, uh, I'm trying to be a little healthier these days. So, in the period of Lent, I've said there's no eating after dinner time, like dinner, and then that's it. No, no snacking Ooh. at nighttime. But that's that not really, really spiritual. Hard. That yeah, that's true. It's just like I want to be healthier, so I'm going to do that. Yeah. And Lent uh, is a convenient time to do it. So, I mean, if I'm if I'm going to make it into a spiritual thing, I will remind myself of my need for Christ. My, my physical hunger reminds me of my spiritual need for Christ, right? My spiritual mm-hmm. hunger. 
but um, that's not really the driving force behind the decision for me. So there's my Lent reflection. No, that's so interesting. I, I liked that uh, reflection. Yeah. That's, yeah, like when I think about it, I'm like, okay, yeah, I gave up fast food, but did I really like exchange that time that I would have been eating fast food to like think about my spiritual reality? Like, I don't know, probably not. So yeah, it, it can't be just such an opportunity for like self improvement. I remember, I think one time I did it and I only, I think I only listened to like Christian music mm -hmm. yeah. and I found like that was a long time ago, but that was kind of an interesting thing. Um, cause it, it was giving up something that I, you know, I listened to music all the time. Um, yeah. that's necessarily not worship music, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was impactful for me for sure. Because I was like filling my time with more and more yeah. of like worship music instead of just giving something up. For sure. So that was kind of a cool thing. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, if people want to do it, with that kind of spiritual benefit to it, that's really great. If people want to use the yeah. time for just a personal improvement, that's fine too. I'm just saying, let's not call it something it's not. <laughs> that is very, very true. So, yeah. That's, that's like, I was, uh, yeah, I was reading something the other day and it was like, I think intermittent fasting is literally just skipping a meal. Right. Like it's sometimes, yeah, you try to make something sound better than what it is. Right. Yeah. 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 So anyways, there's my, yeah. there's my thoughts for the day. Um, okay, so we, we were talking before about <laughs> sayings that people get just a little bit wrong. Uh, they yes. think they're using a common saying, but they're actually not using the common saying. So what was your example? So I had somebody who like confidently we were like making plans for something that we were leading. And he was like, oh, we'll just play it by year. And I was like, wait a sec. Like, that's not the phrase. Like, it's definitely play it by ear. They like, said play it by just, year? Yeah. Like oh. the year 2021. Yeah. <laughs> so and they had no idea that it was wrong. Okay. So that one I always remember. And I was, you know, I was thinking, um, because we had talked about this before we started recording and we were like, this is going to come to us like while we're recording yeah. the podcast. And I yeah. had a thought and it was the phrase, I could care less or I couldn't care less. I don't oh. know what the actual, like, what is the right one? Well, if you could care less, that means that you actually are invested in what you're talking about. So it should be <laughs> if true. You, I yeah, couldn't I couldn't care less. less. Yeah. 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 Which, but, yeah, I don't know. Couldn't care less. I couldn't care yeah. less. Like I don't like I don't care about this at all. Yeah, like, that's I, super negative. Yeah. I, yeah, I couldn't care less about this particular thing. Yeah, I think that's the one that it's like, I think that's what it normally is. Yeah, that's the as. right way to say it. Yeah, yeah, that's the right one. Uh, one of these actually came up in an elder meeting a few months ago. And I hope Len <laughs> Lowen is listening because him and I sparred <laughs> over this one. Um, he, he used the phrase, uh, or no, I used the phrase champing at the bit. Uh, I have never heard that. You've in my never heard that phrase? <laughs> never. <laughs> yeah. Not uh, so it's like you're really excited to get into something like, you know, I'm, I'm champing at the bit to listen to this podcast. Like, and it comes, <laughs> it comes from the days where horses would have a bit in their mouth and they would like champ on it. That's the actual term to champ down on the bit. And you <laughs> had to do with, you know, whatever. So. Um, yeah. I use this phrase and Len immediately said, it's chomping at the bit. Like that's the phrase, <laughs> chomping at the bit, not champing at the bit. 
yeah. uh, had actually land the, the phrases. So we were both Googling to try and find out who was right. Of course. I yeah. was happy to find an article that described chomping at the bit as a gram grammatical abomination. And so I happily <laughs> passed that on to Len. Nice. And, uh, but uh, it, it uh, I think he found that it can be used. It, it's often used both ways these days, uh, even though he's wrong. That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I have not once in my whole life ever heard that oh, well we should do a poll of our listeners see who's heard of that phrase before that is true uh, the other word I, oh yeah, no, you, go ahead you go first all right after me um my all-time favorite one is the like you know half a dozen here or six what is the what is the phrase it's six like one, six half, one a half a dozen of the other, other. Yeah. yeah and Corey and our friend jess and i we just have this like ongoing bit that whenever we use that phrase we have to use it wrong so we'll say like, oh, you know, 12 dozen there, uh, like six in the other. So it just gets butchered <laughs> differently every single time. It's an oh, ongoing. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. The, the word that people say wrong that bothers me is the word et cetera. People oh. say the word et cetera. E <laughs> yeah, there's no X in there. <laughs> E-T-C, not E-C-T. So that yeah. bothers me when people say that wrong. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. 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 So uh, fascinating uh, conversation. Um, and mm. um, you can submit your own phrase that people yes. butcher. Please. Or you can tell us what you're giving up for Lent and whether or not it's with spiritual intent. Yes. That yeah, would be nice would to hear that. as well. So um, today's podcast uh, uh, produced by the, uh, uh, what's the adjective we'd use to describe Caleb Rosborough? The intrepid Ooh. Caleb Rosborough. The, <laughs> the, uh, I've also never heard that word. <laughs> the talented okay, Caleb Rosborough. Yeah, uh, Caleb uh, does a great job of editing these podcasts for us. This conversation today is with Dr. Brian Cooper. Uh, Brian is the Associate Professor of Theology at Mennonite Brethren Seminary, which means he's really smart. And uh, <laughs> he holds a Bachelor of Science degree, a Master of Divinity degree, a Master of Theology degree, and a PhD in Theological Ethics. So um, oh. that's a lot of I have a Bachelor's theology. degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he spent a lot of time in school, and uh, I've taken some of his classes at the seminary, and uh, they're always very thought provoking, and uh, uh, I appreciate the way that he thinks. So, uh, without yeah. further ado, let's jump into our conversation with Brian Cooper. So, Dr. Brian Cooper, welcome to the Ross Road Connect podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to have you aboard and uh, to uh, hear your voice again. I've, I've studied under your leadership in seminary, and uh, we were just discussing that uh, Holly, when she was credentialed, was uh, grilled by you in uh, that interview process. Uh, so Persecuting the saints since yeah. 2010. <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, it's that's an intimidating good. thing to walk into. You walk in there and there's like seven or eight other people just kind of standing there, and it's like just you. It was, uh, it was pretty scary. Yeah. But then once we, we start going, it's better. Yeah, we, we try to look friendly, but it's hard. You can't. Yeah. You can't. No. You know, the combined, <laughs> the combined years of education in the room, too, is far beyond what you have when you walk in. Yeah. So uh, that, that's true. intimidating a little bit as well. But yeah, uh, it is a good process. Mm -hmm. So, Brian, give us a bit of your background, uh, life and ministry. Tell us a bit of where you come from. Well, I am... Uh, a couple of things you need to know off the off the top. I'm a pastor's son, and so I went into ministry uh, despite the fact that I was a pastor's son and, and learned lots about ministry growing up. <laughs> I I'm from kind of kind of all over. I was born in Toronto, but I grew up in Winnipeg. But by now, this stage of my life, I've, been, I've lived about a third of my life in BC. 
And so, so I, I feel like I'm a, a citizen of lots of different places. Winnipeg still feels like home. I got family there. I, I grew up in church and I was uh, the kind of pastor's kid who was in church. If the doors were open, I was there where our family was involved um, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, sometimes Sunday afternoon as well, Wednesday nights. And I, I lived in church, kind of lived in ministry, even before I knew what ministry was. It was just part of my life. And I, I, I sort of took it took it for granted for a, for a long time when I was trying to figure out what, what I was going to do with my life. And it took me a while to actually sit still and listen and, and let God uh, give me a little bit more insight into what specifically he wanted me to do. But eventually I got the message. And uh, after I went to university, uh, because I was going to be a, a medical doctor, I ended up uh, finishing my degree and instead going to seminary out in BC. And that's sort of what we, what, brought me back here. That's one of the reasons why I'm in, in BC now with our, our families, because I went to seminary here at this new thing called ACTS. Mm. It was brand new. I was there on day one. And uh, I was a, after, after seminary, I was a youth pastor. Most of my uh, ministry experiences is as a youth pastor, and I'm still recovering. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then um, when I was in seminary, I, I had this inkling that I wanted to do more education beyond seminary, but I wasn't really sure what that was going to look like. And I sort of got a little bit of um, affirmation from people who heard me teach saying, you know, you know, you don't, you don't suck at that. And that's, so I thought, you know, maybe I should look at that. But I, it was, it wasn't until after I graduated from seminary and did about eight years of ministry that I went back to school because I figured I did, I needed to get some, some experience to go with my education. And I ended up going uh, back to seminary in Toronto and doing my doctoral studies there. And uh, that, that, that time working in a church was sort of helpful for me to get my feet underneath me. And it also, also reoriented my, uh, my ideas about my field of study. But, uh, but, but life and ministry was uh, were always connected for me. The biggest thing that I've learned over the years is to look more clearly, to see more clearly how they're related to one another. And and God has show, slowly you know, shone the light and shown me a little bit of what I needed to see for the next step. Um, but uh, Eugene Peterson talks about a long obedience in the same direction. And I always felt like I was going in a direction. I didn't know exactly where I was going, but I had a, had a bit of an idea and was as believing that God was, was directing me that way. So is there anything you kind of started to answer this question a little bit, but is there anything else that you would add to the question of why have you chosen to pursue theology? Oh, totally. The, the funny thing is if you had asked me in seminary, if I was interested in theology or studying theology, I would have said, no, no, absolutely not. And, uh, and it, it's funny. I, after working in a church and working as a pastor for a number of years, I, I started to have these this increasing desire to to bridge what I saw as this gap between the stuff that I had been taught and the stuff that I was expected to do. And there was sort of there there were two actually two things. There was the stuff that I was expected to do, and then there's the stuff that I wanted to do. But that that's an additional um, consideration. But the biggest thing for me was I had this idea of why I was doing things, but I wanted to connect it more directly to, to my duties. And I wanted to be able to tell people about it. 
Why are you doing these things? Why are these things important to you? Why are we reading our Bibles? Why are we supposed to, to do all these things that we expect uh, to do at church? And I knew that there were better answers than the ones that I had. And in many respects, I'm, I, I'm sort of a late bloomer. I sort of had some of these the kinds of questions that people were asking when they went to Bible college. I was asking after I was still after I went to seminary. And, and so some of my doctoral studies were questions that were oriented around my, my personal spiritual theological development. And it, the more I studied theology, the more I realized that this was actually something that I loved, but I, it was a lot in large part because I discovered what theology really was, not just what I thought it was. Mm. And that was what made the difference for me. I, I had grown, I had grown up with theology and even in seminary studied theology as a set of questions that you learn the, the, the or sorry, the set of answers. You learn the answers and you get all this information. But theology, I found, was actually the, the skill and the ability to ask good questions in light of our faith. And once I went from focusing on answers to focusing on questions, it opened up a whole new world. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's that's great. So you, you've hinted at the answer to the, the next question, which is what's the task of theology? What's the purpose of it? Uh, and I, I, I've always been um, appreciative of your, uh, may, maybe it's part of what you just said, and also your, your, one of your degrees is in theological ethics. Uh, the, the idea that theology needs to, to, um, to be lived out, right? It, it need, the rubber needs to hit the road. Um, Absolutely. It's not just a pie in the sky kind of thing. It's something that, that needs to be lived. So, so uh, would you add anything to what's, what's the purpose of, of the task of theology? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm, what in my mind right now is, is some of the prep I'm doing because I actually have an opportunity to preach at my home church. So I'm recording that next week and I'm preaching on the Last Supper, the story of the Last Supper from Luke 22. And as I'm reading the story of the Last Supper, it, it, it occurs to me that the, the disciples were, were, were in the midst of a, a profound experience. They were in the presence of, of Christ who was, who was talking about the new covenant in his blood and his body was given. And it was, and there was like these profound um, issues, profound things that, that Jesus is talking about. It's a massive game changer. And the disciples had no idea what was going on. They were just, it was like drinking from the fire hose. But, but they, once they entered into this experience, it initiated a process. And after the fact, they reflected on this and they started to gain insight and clarity that, that was helpful, that, that, that enabled their future ministry. For me, that's what theology is about. We enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, and we have the profound weight of this experience. But we don't have the tools or the, in, the initial knowledge of, of all of the significance of this. We don't know all of what it means. And so theology actually is the process of, of learning from those around us, learning from our experience, learning from scripture, and, and filling in all of the, 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 the substance of, of discipleship so that we actually understand the, the meaning of the experience that we have. We understand what God is calling us to do. We understand some of the, the, the questions to ask in order to figure out what we're supposed to do with ourselves and our lives in light of who God is 
in light, in light of God's mission in the world, in light of what God has commissioned us to do as believers, sort of individually and collectively, all of that we sort of cumulatively approach and and um, develop as as we go, and we do it together, which was the which is the amazing thing. We're not in this alone. You don't get thrown into the deep end to figure these things out. And for me, as an ethicist, all of this moves us on a trajectory right to, to action. It, it, it's practical. It, it's going to affect my career choice and my 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 uh, choice of a spouse if I get married and 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 where where I live and the things that I do, the sh- things that I shop, all of this, all of these things are need to be reflections of my theological convictions, the things that I believe guide me as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if I don't think about them all the way through to their logical endpoint in those very practical ways, it's not because my theology isn't important and doesn't take me there. It's because I've just stopped. Mm. And that's tragic because I think there are a lot of Christians who stop part way and they, they have this stuff that's there, but they don't think about the implications of what it means. They stop reflecting and they stop growing. And then they just sort of swirl around and they, and uh, the church suffers, mission suffers. A lot of things break down as a result. Mm. Mm. So I think, yeah, all believers, we live out theology and a lot of people, we have different theology from one another. So how can someone improve their theological thinking and process? Great question. Great question. When I get, when I hear a question like that, it makes me think of golf, Mm. not because I like golf. I don't like golf. Um, (laughs) I heard Mark Twain once said that golf is a good walk spoiled, (laughs) but, but here's what I know about golf. People who, who take up golf, they, they, they enjoy the feeling of hitting a really good shot. And I've golfed enough times to know that a really good shot feels good. But if you really want to uh, have good shots with regularity, then you work on your game. You practice your stroke. You practice at a driving range. You, you, you make sure you have the best tools. And you, you, you actually work at skill development. I think a lot of people would be wise to think about their Christian discipleship this way. We have an amazing opportunity to have intimacy with God in Jesus Christ and enjoy the fruits that come from that. But we don't want that just to be an accidental thing that happens now and again. We have the ability to, to cultivate skill in, in thinking about the implications of being a disciple. And we, we, you know, we have scripture, which, which gives us insight into the way God has worked in the world and what God wants to do. And wants to do in us, and and reading scripture helps us understand that spiritual disciplines are actually like physical disciplines. We can practice our golf stroke. We can we can develop our spiritual disciplines that that give us almost a spiritual muscle memory that that help instill good habits. And and we also interact with other Christians and and sharpen one another. We we help one another in the process by asking each other by questions by holding one another accountable. There are all these kinds of things contribute to kind of a theological skill development. And when we do that, we find that we have not only quicker answers, but deeper answers and, and a greater awareness. And we, we acquire the wisdom that God promises us because we've invested in the process. And, and life uh, works better the closer we are to God, the more, the wiser we are because we've developed those disciplines. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's let's take this um, to a specific live example in the world today. Um, uh, obviously, we're living in the midst of a pandemic, and uh, we are. We are. What? <laughs> <It's a> <laughs> <new> <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> um, and uh, in our province, uh, gatherings are restricted, and we aren't able to gather as we normally would as a church. Um, and I'm sure, Brian, you've heard, as I have and Holly has, lots of different responses to, well, lots of things that are going on, but specifically government restrictions. And and um, as I survey and as I see things out there in the world of the internet and as I interact with people, I see people sometimes responding biblically, sometimes responding theologically. Um, a lot of times, though, I'm seeing people respond emotionally or sometimes mm -hmm. politically. Mm -hmm. um, which, of course, those things come into our, our thinking around uh, these kinds of issues. Um, but I, I want to get your take on, on how can we think theologically, how can, we, how can we be faithful to Scripture and how we think about what the government is asking us not to do right now um, right. in a way that is honoring to Scripture and, and honoring to, to one another and to our culture and society at large? Really good question. I know that in, in my own reading, in my own church, we, we've got a range of sort of feelings about this kind of intuitive responses. There, there are a couple of things that, that I think stick out for me. Uh, what is the, one of the things that's really important in theological work is to be aware of kind of the resources that we draw upon for, for our, our commitments and our, and our theological principles. What I mean by that is, for example, in the, in the context of government restrictions on, on church gatherings, we can think of that in terms of uh, church mission. We can think about, about that in terms of opportunities to, to show love and, and kindness toward other people. We can also think about it in terms of civil rights, of political um, convictions, political ideologies. Now, those things are all, you know, potential ways to, to frame the conversation, but they're not all theological responses to this. I think as Christians, we have a, a responsibility to think about these things theologically. And one of the things that I've, I've given some thought to is the fact that in, in Scripture, we don't have a strong mandate presented to assert civil rights in the face of of government laws and, and, and actions. And so if we make that the, the, the primary consideration, and if that motivates a, a response of, of resentment or anger or even hostility, that's, that's a problem. That's going to be a problem because it's, it's going to take us in a non-theological direction, and it's going to take us toward behavior that is going to conflict with some things that are actually fairly clearly mandated in the scripture, which is respect for government authorities and submission to 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 uh, their rule so there so what the principles are that that motivate our response is a, is an important thing a second thing is this this tension between questions and answers i think that this plays out this way if we uh, assume that we know the answer behind that for why restrictions are in place that we may be motivated to respond in a certain way, but we might be actually wrong. We may assume that the government 
is in some sort of opposition to the work of churches and so is trying to suppress them and is using this opportunity to do that. That's, a, that's an assumption. That's assume, an, an assumption of a, a particular motivation. And that's an answer that's being imposed on this. I think what we're probably more wise to do as theologians and as responsible citizens even is to ask questions. If we have concerns, we ask people in authority. Why is this happening? Tell me more. Explain to me. When I've heard people ask questions, I've actually heard uh, that there are some really competent and caring answers being given to those questions. And a lot of the concerns that I might have harbored evaporate. So as Christians and as theologians, asking good questions is never going to be something that, that um, serves us bad. Yeah. I, uh, I appreciated that you wrote a blog post several months ago already on, on uh, the, the dangers of arguing for personal rights uh, in, in this mm-hmm. kind of a, a scenario. And uh, it's been interesting to read the New Testament through that lens, uh, to, to look for places where people would have stood up for their rights. And, and actually, the, the contrary is often argued, where, you know, we're being asked not to meet, but there were instances, you know, First Peter and, and Romans come to mind, where Christians are being actively oppressed, and yet the instruction is still to submit. And so right. if they were supposed to submit in that kind of a context, that, that seems to be a, a translatable principle to, to where we are now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's a human instinct to, to associate circumstances with something that we're familiar with and try to create parallels. It helps us conceptualize them. Uh, the, that, that blog post that you talked about, I think it got reprinted in the Herald online mm. and a, a letter to the editor came across and the, the letter writer wrote that, the, the restrictions made him think of the uh, um, political oppression that happened in the Mennonite communities in Russia mm. because they were, they were being suppressed by the government. And I understand that there would be some appearance of similarity. The government is saying that the churches can't do certain things, and that might evoke um, strong memories. But I think we, we need to be wise and discerning enough to, to evaluate the context a little bit more thoroughly and understand the motivation, understand the implications and the duration. These aren't permanent restrictions. There, there is no uh, suggestion that churches are not important, but uh, because of the health risk the, and because of the, of the composition of a lot of church congregations, the, the restriction is in place. And repeatedly in the news, we're, we're seeing that the, the people who violate, whether they're from a church community or, or, from, or in a context of another gathering, are causing health-related issues to propagate through the through the community. There are reasons why these restrictions are in place. So, as as uh, as Christians, we want to be especially mindful of how we can live in the interests of other people, discern wisely, and both wait this out and also for uh, look for creative ways to do the work that the church continues to do, whether we get to meet altogether or not. Because those things are there. Those opportunities are there if we explore them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is there, you've already definitely been kind of answering this question, um, but is there anything else you would add specifically about what concerns do you about how Christians are responding and what gives you hope about how you see Christians responding right now? You know, I, I, I see that there are, my, my, my biggest area of concern is 
among Christian groups that I see being reported about in the press. And I understand that the press may not be completely objective, but nevertheless, I, I, I've also heard from uh, church leaders writing to government officials um, that, that they are taking an, an unnecessarily adversarial um, posture. I, I don't think it's necessary to do this. I think that the church is called to be countercultural at times, and I think at times we need to discern what that looks like and, and carry through and accept the consequences. But I don't think that we need to be looking for them at every turn. So that kind of thing gives me a uh, cause for concern. But I do see that there are churches that are looking creatively into the community for ways in which they can do ministry. There are there, you know, whether it be meeting online, whether it be through um, phone and email communication more, more, um, regularly and, and specifically to people that they know are, are isolated, whether it is through ministry to uh, homeless people or other, other uh, marginalized people, more specifically, who might be suffering the consequences, might be suffering extra difficulties because of, of COVID and other restrictions. Like the, there, are, there are opportunities out there. I'm sure there are lots that I am simply not aware of. But I think when, when we're motivated by Christ-like concern to do the mission of the, of the church in the world. Opportunities will present themselves. We will find them. It's, it's the only reason that we don't is because I, I think that sometimes we just fail to look. Mm. Yeah. Okay. yeah uh, let's dive a little bit deeper into the, the, the idea of personal rights and arguing for, um, you know, our, our charter rights. And on one hand, I, mm -hmm. I think I understand why people go there because it, it does give us a common language with a government that that's not too interested in biblical theology, right? It, 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 right. it gives us a, um, a way to speak on their level, so to speak. Um, theologically, I think we've, we've said that there, there are some issues uh, with making that the, the main thrust of our argument, but uh, is there anything else that you want to say there, Brian, about uh, personal rights, charter rights, and, and how we should think about that in, in the midst of this? Yeah, you know, I, I don't want anybody to get the idea that Christians should be doormats and say, mm -hmm. oh, we're just going to surrender all our rights and let yeah. the government do what they want to do or let other, pe other people do what they want to do. I think that actually a, a public conversation about, about rights, it can be a very fruitful missional conversation for Christians as well, especially where there is the opportunity to advocate on the basis of personal rights or civil rights for people whose rights are being um, taken away or, or, or suppressed. I think that what Christians need to be aware of is that personal rights are personal rights for everybody. There are times when we wanna speak up against an, an injustice, an, a genuine injustice and say, our rights are being uh, taken away, and but not in a way that draws attention to us in particular, but draws attention to the to the justice issue. But I think we should be as quick to point to other instances where other people's rights are being uh, infringed upon, even if it doesn't directly uh, affect us. And I think that you know the work of of organizations like the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada that are uh, rooted in uh, attempts to do Christian advocacy work for justice. I mean, and internationally, there's the work of, of organizations like the International Justice Mission offer Christians uh, an opportunity to hold governments to account for maintaining standards of justice, maintaining standards of integrity that, that operate at a civil level. 
we're not expecting them to, to act like Christians, but we're acting them to adhere to at least a minimum standard of justice that all citizens of a country have the right to expect. That kind of work is work that Christians should embrace because when we make sure that other people are taken care of, we open the door to relationship and communication and mission in, in respect of those people. We don't do it to manipulate them, but when we create the opportunity for relationship, we make the gospel winsome and we show the gospel to be as truly uh, good uh, a message as it really is. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited to hear your answer for this next question because it's a topic that I'm like very fascinated about. So what do you believe is the right relationship between church and state? I think that Christians should engage the political process mm -hmm. fully and wholeheartedly, but in a nonpartisan way. I think our focus should be uh, to, to, uh, to uh, respond to the issues rather than to respond to the people. So, for example, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, – on, on online when there's a when there's an election usually the cbc has a, a link to a website called the vote compass and the vote compass actually identifies key election issues and where each party uh, lands in respect to those issues and questions political economic social and others christians should be aware of the of where uh, parties are we should be aware of where our convictions take us and prayerfully make the, the best choice we can, recognizing that no political party embodies a Christian agenda. But engaging the process, responding to candidates, availing ourselves of, of all the opportunities that we have to, to gain information in order to make a, an informed decision, then we should be out and, and voting. I don't know that it's necessarily very helpful for us to attach our... our um, missional objectives to a, a, a political party. I think that actually necessarily takes us uh, askew, mm -hmm. but uh, discerning as wisely is, is, is a great thing. Another area where I think Christians should be involved is in, in making sure that we are doing what we can to allow everybody to partake of the process. Um, in our family, we have a, a, an established tradition of working as election officials when there's a an election, municipal, provincial, or federal. We want to be the best and courteous, most courteous, rather, and, and most helpful election officials that we can so that we help everybody exercise their opportunity to vote and be part of the process. We live in, a, in, a, in what is supposed to be a democratic society. We want people to buy in and engage. Mm. So I think that's a, a, a great thing. And I think that the third thing is that Christians have an, an opportunity through church activities, through church engagement in mission, to engage social issues in their communities and show themselves to be a, a vital part of the community. I had this horrible insight a number of years ago that if all of the churches in Canada evaporated instantly, there are a lot of communities where people wouldn't even notice. And that, I think, was the most horrifying thing I could think of. I think that people when there are needs in the community, well, want to look for a place where there's hope. And if a church isn't, doesn't provide that, then what are we here for? P 
partisan involvement doesn't have to be a part of our agenda, but but political, social, economic engagement is part of what we do as Christians. It's what the early church did. One of the one of the very first things that the that the, the church did in the Book of Acts was organize so that widows who were non-Hebrew speaking got food baskets. It, it was, it was, they effectively set up a food bank. And and they elected the the first deacons to oversee that. That was one of the first organized efforts of the early church. I think that's a great model for us to to follow. Yeah, it's mm, a great so, answer. So Brian, would you ever stand up and say uh, publicly, "I am voting for X candidate uh, or X party because of these kinds of reasons," or would you shy away from doing that to allow other people to engage with the issues on their own? I think as a theologian and as a leader, it's my responsibility to act, to raise awareness around the questions. Mm-hmm. So if I think that, I don't know, fracking is a key question, and if homelessness is a key question, I'm going to talk about the issues and talk about <clears throat> how my Christian conscience is stirred by uh, the need to respond to those issues. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's irresponsible of me to to point to uh, a particular political candidate as being my choice or because then I must, then I might create the perception that it's that person is a Christian's choice, at least in a public way, in a private conversation, I might t- speak more freely because I'll have opportunity to contextualize my context, my, my con, my con uh, comments, excuse me. But I think that uh, in a, in a, in a, Large gatherings focusing on the issues and on and on Christian response to issues gives people the opportunity to prayerfully discern, sort of individually and in groups, what they're going to do. And some people's consciences will take them in a certain direction. Some people, will, their consciences will take them in a slightly different direction, and that's okay. We don't all have to be in lockstep on on kind of political and economic and other issues of that nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that one of the dangers for us when we get ourselves attached to a particular candidate or party is we we have blind spots that we refuse to acknowledge, and uh, and there are issues that we just pretend don't exist in this party's candidate uh, or on their platform, uh, and right. that, that's troubling. Well, and it seems to me that in in Canada, unlike the United States, in the United States they seem to idolize whoever it is the pre- is the president or at least a lot of people do, not everybody. In Canada, the, the, the favorite posture seems to be to take pot shots at whoever is the prime minister. It seems, it seems to be in our national ethos mm. to, to poke. And we don't vote uh, governments in, we vote them out. All right. But I think that in, as a Canadian, I have a, a responsibility to do what I can to help make my government the best government it could be. Yeah. I mean, it's it's accountable to me and to people like me. Why are why are we not actually trying to help our government? Maybe we have to point the finger and say, "Hey, you need to do better." But I think we also need to be just as quick to affirm good decisions when they are made by governing officials, whether that the governing party is our chosen party or not. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me throw a, a curveball into the conversation or a left turn here. Um, okay. Uh, I've had uh, a few people ask me, and maybe you've had people ask you, uh, is the pandemic a sign of the end times? Is this uh, 
you know, a sign that Jesus is coming back soon. And one of the reasons I ask is because the seminary hosted that fascinating conversation with Daryl Johnson uh, last week, Navigating Revelation, uh, which is on the seminary website. uh, And I'd encourage our our, um, listeners to go and watch that very insightful conversation. But um, how do you respond when people say that to you or ask you that question? That's a really good question, because actually we had an email that came in uh, to our office just the other day asking about sort of how MBs have read the book of Revelation and, and what seems to be changing. From, from, from where we sit, from where I sit, certainly, the, the focal point of the book of Revelation and, and other, you know, kind of apocalyptic literature in the Bible is uh, on being a faithful disciple in anticipation of the end, even in difficult times. There isn't really uh, a, a mandate in Scripture to identify particular historical events or people with um, with characters described in, in the book of Revelation or elsewhere. So I, I hesitate to say, oh, and the pandemic is, is this sign and connect it to a particular uh, theological system or, or, or biblical text. It's, it's, a, it's a trial. It's a difficulty. There's no doubt about it. But whether things are going really badly or really well, my call is the same, to follow Jesus faithfully, to, to tell other people about him, to live with integrity and wait, wait, await the Lord's return. The, the main thing is the main thing. I, I think that the, the worst thing that we do is get distracted by these things and start to speculate. When we start to speculate, speculate about things that we cannot possibly know, then, then we've, we're half done already. So I tried to change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> I think the most uh, intriguing thing that uh, uh, Dr. Daryl Johnson said last week, and I'd never heard this said about Revelation before, um, is that Revelation presents us with themes that are true in every generation of Christ followers. Like throughout the ages, these things are true. So rather than looking to, are they coming true now? uh, well, that, that, well, that's a, that's a legitimate question. But rather than looking to the yes. future to say, when are they going to come true? We should be saying, how are they coming true now, just as they have in the past? And how does this influence how we follow Jesus in the here and now? And, and, and that is a, that's a profoundly wise insight. I mean, there, there are so many times in history when people have pointed to a particular figure. Is that the Antichrist? Or is this the Battle of Armageddon? Or is this? And then generations later... They're asking the same question about a different set of historical uh, factors. Yeah, there, there are history is working to a conclusion, but there are a lot of rep- repetitive themes, mm. and we yeah. can really get ourselves all turned on in knots if we yeah. if we dwell on them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and I think I like, agree. I think by nature, like we can tend to be selfish people sometimes. So I think we always assume like, oh, because this is happening in my like generation now, like this has to be a sign of the end times, but it's, you know, we're selfish sometimes. So we just think that the whole world kind of revolves around us. But then we remember, yeah, there's generations behind us that have gone through worse things that we've experienced too. Well, exactly, exactly. And, Mm -hmm. and sometimes sadly, we, you know, we, we, our perspective gets distorted. You know, when we start to think the apocalypse is coming because the Wi-Fi went down, it's probably (laughs) pause for, for sober second thought. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Totally. So what opportunities do you think 
are being presented to the church right now? Or in other words, what do you think God is doing in the church these days? You know, I think that there are a lot of different things. I think that the the church is sometimes slow to embrace new things, new technologies. I think there are a lot of churches that have been dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century because they couldn't meet. And now they're having to um, podcast or live stream or do things um, in, virtually that they used to do in person. I think that we're, we're so using new techniques to, to communicate, to, to fellowship, to worship is helping us. I think at the same time, I think the church is being, being given opportunities to simplify. There are a lot of churches that relied on programs and, and a lot of kind of sophisticated um, events that to, to would be the substance of their, of their gatherings and their worship and their mission. But now we don't have the opportunity, opportunity to do that. But you know what? Our neighbors are still right where they were. And most of the time, they're home more often. So we actually have the opportunity to, on a, on a, in a very simple way, make the kinds of relational connections that are really useful for sharing our faith. I, so I think that it's pulling us in, in different ways that way. And I think that there are, there are ways that the, the church is being for, forced to rethink its posture related to governments and social service organizations and other structures to, to be less isolated and more integrated, to look for opportunities to partner within the bounds of our, of our theological convictions and, and consciences and, and do the work of the gospel in slightly different ways. But it still gets done. And where it gets done, that's what we need to celebrate. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, <clears throat> are there uh, a couple more questions? And, and I want to throw this one wide open for you to go whichever direction you want. Um, I'm wondering if there are areas of theological concern uh, that you see when you survey the church today, a anything that we need to give more careful thought to um, anything that we, we aren't living out the way that we should. And, and maybe even conversely, are there theological areas of strength that you see and appreciate when you look at the church today? Yeah, absolutely. I think that in my experience in, uh, in our, in our denomination and other denominations like it, uh, a strength has been a, a strong focus on the authority of Scripture. We, keep, we, we, we insist that we keep coming back to Scripture to ground us, to orient us, and then we move from there. But a, but a profound um, problem and weakness is that we don't often define what authority of Scripture means, and we don't uh, talk about how to interpret scripture faithfully as a community in order to glean from it and derive God's um, teaching for us in the moment faithfully from scripture. We, a lot of times we sort of conflate what scripture says with what scripture means. Mm. Not everything that the scripture says means exactly what it says. When, when the Old Testament's Writers like Isaiah talk about the hand of God as the art or as the arm of God shortened. He's not talking about a big giant arm cosmically in the heavens. Mm -hmm. it's, it's talking metaphorically. There are lots of scriptures that we recognize that we need to interpret in order to understand what they mean. But we, we don't, uh, as Christians, always do as good a job of working on that kind of that method piece because it's not fun. It's difficult. It's, it's, 
it's not exciting or it doesn't seem as exciting as other things. But the problem is that what happens is that we all, we subconsciously invite other influences, other priorities into our theological thought. And we sort we tend to drift. I'm not suggesting that we need to be aware, wary of cons- a conspiracy against this. I think this is just us doing it to ourselves. We are actually not being nearly as faithful to the scripture that we say is our guide as we think we are, partly because we don't read it and study it, partly because we assume that it just gives straightforward answers directly into our experience when it doesn't always. And as a result, the, the, the cultural influences that we think that we're avoiding are actually right there, and, and they're affecting our, our attitudes and priorities in our churches. They're affecting our posture even when we come to church. We, I, we, whenever you hear people coming to church and complaining about how their needs are not being met, you have to ask them at yourself and maybe ask that person, what is your reason for coming to church in the first place? Because if I'm going to church for me, then I have to ask, what am I looking for? Is it that I want certain things and I expect the church to be a service provider for me? Well, the church will be a resource for me, but my posture shouldn't be to come to get. My posture should be to come to give. And when everybody comes to church to give, to make sure that other people are cared for, everybody gets their needs met. When everybody comes only to receive, nobody's needs get met. But see, that that reversal of priority reflects a cultural value that I am important and that I need to make sure that I take care of me. That's not the value that comes from scripture. But we we miss that because of the... And there are 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 other theological... um, commitments, lifestyle commitments, there are other, there are economic commitments. Cons- uh, individualism is one problem in the church. Consumerism is another big problem in the church that we don't talk about. We talk about um, sexuality, and we talk about truth-telling, and we talk about a lot of other things, but we don't talk about consumerism. Mm. In fact, pastors who, t- who preach about consumerism usually get more flack than they get praise, mm. because it's a problem that we don't want to talk about, because if we do, we start to feel guilty and we don't like that. And that comes back, takes me back to consumerism. So there are a lot of cultural values that we've bought into um, that, that we, we need to be wary of. And, and Paul talks about that. You know, in Romans 12, he talks about the world's, you know, in, in J.B. Phillips' translation, a good paraphrase, it's don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. The pressure is always there. We can resist that pressure, but, but if we don't, we have to acknowledge what we're going to become. So I'm I'm sorry I'm rambling. No, that's that's good. I I sometimes wonder when uh, or or look forward to the day when we arrive in heaven and the Lord reveals to us all of the ways we were influenced by other things that we weren't even aware of. Right? Um, yeah. We, we yes. Uh, we studied uh, uh, Mark chapter 7 and uh, Jesus and the Pharisees a few weeks ago, and that story just keeps coming back to me over and over again. Uh, like these Pharisees thought they were doing so well, and yet they were being, they, they were, you know, Jesus calls them blind guides in, in Matthew, right? And yes, and they just weren't aware of it. And so what, what are the ways in which we're not aware of the things that are actually hurting us in our discipleship rather than helping us? That is another great question. 
that's a great that's a great theological question. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to ask one more question, and, and maybe Holly's got more uh, after that. But um, uh, community, of course, is a strong MB uh, conviction. Uh, we we mm-hmm. believe in community, and you've referenced uh, doing theology in community, understanding the Bible together in community. Um, in these days, we've all been forced online. So our church is, is online and not in person, uh, and yours is as well. Um, it's, it's, it's opened a door to new opportunities for online experiences, uh, online worship and whatnot. My question is, post-pandemic, when we are able to be in the building again, what role do you see online church services playing? It, it, is it, I think there's a, uh, for, for those of us who have grown up in the church, we very quickly say, well, you need to be in the building. And yet there are other people who seem to be perfectly comfortable to sit at home and be a part of the community in that way um, and participate that way. Is, is that, what do you think about that? Where does the line, where, where do you draw the line there? How do, you, how do you interact with that dynamic of the online community versus in-person once this is all over? Well, this is an interesting question because it makes me think back to my own upbringing. I was a pastor's son, and my mom was a registered nurse. Mm -hmm. So because I was a pastor's son, I was if there was church was happening, I was there. And we were always early, and we always stayed late. So that it was my thinking was very um, framed by this participation in what was going on kind of mentality. My mom was a nurse who worked shifts. And so there were a lot of times when we were... Uh, we'd all come to church except for my mom because she was working on Sunday or she was working Saturday. There were just her, her, her involvement was constrained by her job. She wanted to be there, but she couldn't. And she felt the loss of, of community because she wasn't able to participate. Mm-hmm. What I think technology does is that it affords people who for a variety of legitimate reasons and and not just because their job is, is, is involves shift work. I think there are there, there are other reasons why um, we want to th- rethink our theology of kind of scheduling. But for a variety of reasons, legitimate reasons, they can't participate in Sunday morning or or regular events. But if we use technology, we can extend them. We can podcast them. We can we can include people in a way. And I'm not suggesting that fellowship means watching the podcast and that that's what makes you a part of the community but if you don't have any idea what happened you have no point of contact that that can be a, an anchor when you're actually interacting with other people in the community i think we need to couple our embrace of technology with other personal means of interacting with people holding people accountable encouraging people um, inquiring after their welfare meeting their needs and we can actually do a greater job it's always been, a, I, I've always thought it's a shame that, that churches that have people who are shut-ins, who would like to be part of the community, can't be. But now they can be in a, in a fuller way, and it creates opportunities for connection with those people outside of the worship service during the week. Those people who are interested in their welfare can be involved in you know, virtual visitation or even personal visitation. There are lots of, of things that we can do. Um, it also, I mean, there are churches, I know I have a friend who's a, a youth pastor of a church in Langley, who at the early on in the in the pandemic, their podcast was being watched by two or three times 
more people than attended their church. Mm-hmm. They actually had opportunities to make connections with people through their online presence that they never would have made otherwise. And there are people who might never darken the door of, of our churches for a variety of reasons who might watch the podcast and then talk, be willing to talk about it from with somebody from church. There are ways to, to, to leverage this and you know, to our, to, you know, our advantage and for the sake of the gospel. And the great thing is we, we can try all of these things and it doesn't actually cost us a great deal except our time. And what's the worst that happens? Somebody says no, or it doesn't work. So if it doesn't work, we try something different. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I think fear of failure is something that should be absent from our churches. We shouldn't be um, afraid of trying something that, that might fail because we don't know what will succeed. And if we, try, if we don't try things because we um, think they'll fail, then we have failed because we have failed to try. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read an article where uh, the online experience was described as a front door and a side door, meaning uh, a mm-hmm. front door for people who might never go into your building or might never experience your church otherwise. And a side door for people who can't attend that week, who are part of your church and want to keep up to date on what's going on. They want to watch the service, but they can't be there because they're working or they're on vacation or they're, you know, whatever. Uh, I thought yeah. that was kind of a, a unique way to phrase it. That's cool. Yes, I, I think that's very well said. I mean, and I will concede that there are people who I think because of the pandemic and because of the loss of the habit of participation may not come back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I lament that. But I think that churches, um, at the same time as they want to do what they can to try to bring those people back into fellowship, should be aware that if they were that loose before, they probably weren't that tight before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we have people who were stalwartly committed who have made a 180 degree turn. We have people who were nominally committed who've, who've shaken loose. We, you know, that just knowing the context helps us understand how to gauge our expectations. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, any other questions from you, Holly? I don't think so. I think you've given everybody a lot of great things to think about. It's been a really cool conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much, Brian. We've gone in a lot of different directions here. I appreciate your insight. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Well, I've enjoyed myself, so I hope it's helpful. Yeah. Mm. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks again, Brian. And uh, maybe we'll connect with you again down the road. And uh, to the rest of our listeners, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be back with another episode before too long. Ross Road Connect podcast is produced by Ross Road Community Church in Abbotsford, BC. For more information about our church community and links to more podcasts and sermons, visit rossroadcc.ca.